This week on Myths and Legends, it's the story of the White Snake, an extremely popular Chinese legend. You'll see how one act of kindness can echo down through the centuries, and that you probably shouldn't date animals. On the Creature of the Week, there is murder vomit. Because that's apparently a thing. This is Myths and Legends, episode 164A. Here I go again. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Without giving too much away, today's story is set in China, in the 12th century, and it's considered one of China's four great folktales. We're not going to start in the 12th century today, though, but in the 6th century BC, where a beggar, who's just trying to make a buck, is going to use a snake gallbladder to do so. The beggar crouched over the rock. He gripped the small iron knife in his right hand, while the left held the rock. On three, he told himself. He held his breath. One, two. The hand gripped the rock and threw it away. Beneath, a tiny white snake was momentarily stunned by the light. The beggar's hand shot down and caught the snake just behind the head, pinching it. It writhed in his hands and tried to bite at him with its tiny jaws, but he had it. He smiled. Back at his small camp just off the road, he pinned the little snake down in the dirt, putting a thumb to its throat to hold it, while he carefully went in with the knife. What are you doing there? The beggar heard. And the man sighed and pulled his knife away from the writhing reptile, looking to see Lu Tai, a local timber merchant who had been passing by. The beggar said that he was working. He gestured to the cup of wine at his side and the snake he had pinned to the dirt. He was going to cut out the animal's gallbladder and sell it to someone who would make medicine or something with it. He didn't know and he didn't care. He did need to focus though. The gallbladder was worth 50 coppers, but only if it came in one piece. 100 coppers, Lutai said. The beggar laughed. Who was paying 100 for a gallbladder? I am, but not for the gallbladder. For the snake. Alive, he said, and shoved his hand into his pack. The small bag of coppers kicked up dust when it landed next to the pinned, tiny snake. I don't know what you know, but you're not going to get more than 100 for this snake, the beggar said and pinched the white snake. The merchant produced another bag that was soon occupied by the scared, squirming form of the little snake. Who said I was trying to? The merchant replied with a wink. He thanked the beggar for his business and walked back off the way he came. He broke off from the road and he found a small trail going off into the forest. And he broke off from the trail when he came to a stream. He followed the stream until he came to a cave. And there... With a glance up and down the river, he unlooped the strings on the little bag. He reached in and pinched the snake behind her head. You'll be safe here. Be good, little one. He said to the snake with a smile, then rolled his eyes. He was talking to a snake. He let the little white snake down and then stood, expecting it to slither off to safety in the darkness of the cave. But it didn't. It sat up and just looked 
at the timber merchant. Lutai cocked his head. Huh. If he didn't know better, it was almost like the snake looked grateful. He laughed it off as he turned and left the cave. That was ridiculous, of course. It was just a snake. Lady Bai, a woman in her early 20s, rose from the water's edge. It had been a long time since she had been in this area. She smelled the air. He was here. It was time. No one noticed her unless she wanted to be noticed. And she didn't want to be noticed. Not yet. She walked through the town. There was a place here that they used. A former palace. A place normal people would pass by without realizing what was held inside. But as she approached this home, she noticed a presence out front. Something was here. A demon. So Lady Bai strode up to the house that no one could see in the form of the demon that didn't know that she knew it was there. It only had a moment. In the flash of realization, the being, the demon, grew and warped. It became something more than a dragon. Something that reflected the darkness from which it had come. Its eyes glowed blue and it looked down in the form of Lady Bai. The woman smirked and held out her hand. The blue-black cloud began to fray at the edges. As the demon tried to move, but gasped. The last thing it did was look down in panic before the cloud that was the demon evaporated. Lady Bai lowered her hand and lowered her gaze. She knew how demons worked. She knew that they wanted people to see their true forms as something powerful and horrible, but they were simple. Lady Bai reached down and pinched the little blue snake behind her head, lifting her from the ground. She walked in the home. Inside, she commanded it to speak. The blue snake was panicked. She asked who or what Lady Bai was that she could do that. Lady Bai smirked and dropped all pretense. She said she knew how demons worked, because she was one. In an instant, the floor in the center of the room was filled with the massive, coiled body of the white serpent. Lady Bai said that she was once like the little blue snake. She, too, was a demon. But long ago, 1700 years to be exact, something changed. There was a, a kindness. Someone saved her life from a man who was going to cut her gallbladder out. He bought her for a hundred coppers, expected nothing from it, and got nothing in return. He left her in a cave, and from that moment on, she decided to be different. She devoted herself to meditation and self-improvement, seeking after the Buddha and living that way for 1,700 years. It was only recently that one of the immortals, the Queen Mother herself, came to Lady Bai. Her 1,700 years of self-cultivation hadn't gone unnoticed and the Queen Mother wanted to offer her an opportunity. Immortality. She could come and join the congregation of the immortals. But to do so, she had to repay the kindness visited upon her all those years ago. Lutai, the timber merchant, had died many lifetimes ago. But he had been reborn, here, in this village. As Sushan, she would repay the kindness he had done to her in the past lifetime. They would marry. 
but there was something else the Queen Mother had warned her about. The Queen Mother was supportive, but there were those in heaven, even those among the immortals, who would not be supportive. They would never consent to allowing a demon to rise like this. They would hunt her. They would try to stop her. She pulled out a knife and pressed the neck of the little blue snake to the table. So, now she had a question. Who was the little blue snake? The snake said she wasn't with the immortals. She wasn't trying to stop the white snake. She was like Lady Bai had been all those years ago, only trying to find a safe place to sleep for the night. Lady Bai brought the knife up and then put it away. She said that when painting a dragon or a tiger, you cannot paint their heart. When you know a person, you know their face, not their karma. She let the snake go. The next morning, after the pair had sat up talking throughout the night, the blue snake was in awe of the white snake. The blue snake had lived her life like an animal, like a demon, traveling from place to place, taking what she could get from whoever was stupid enough or unwitting enough to let it go. She didn't know there was a better way. Here was her better way. After 1700 years, Lady Bai, the white snake, was happy to have someone to talk to, a friend. At sunrise, two women, a tall one in white and her servant, a younger one in blue, left their home, now a splendid mansion, one that no one had quite noticed before. They were seen by everyone on the street as they walked down, but remembered by none. Sushian rested his hands on the graves. It had been a long time, but it would never be long enough. He took his broom and swept away the dirt and the leaves and set a small offering down. His part to honor his parents for the festival. He said goodbye. Same time next week. As he walked back to the boat to cross the river, he felt a few drops and opened his umbrella. It hadn't been an easy few years, but he had landed on his feet. After his parents died, he and his sister had been orphans, but they had scraped by. She had married a high-ranking policeman who got his new brother-in-law a job as a pharmacy clerk. It wasn't much, but for the first time since he was a child, he wasn't only surviving. When he arrived at the riverbank, the rain was coming down, and he saw his bride waiting. Just then, he heard the yells and the laughter. Running in the rain were two women, a taller one in white, and a younger one in blue. They rushed over to Sushan's waiting boat and said that the Lord of Heaven had sent down a heavy rain. Could they hire him? The man shrugged and gestured to Sushan. Sorry, he was already hired. Sushan noticed the women, who were soaked and stranded, and he smiled. Where do you need to go? Sushan stood at the edge of the street, taking his turn getting soaked. He had talked with the enchanting woman in white the whole way across the river, and of course, given her and her friend the umbrella. Now, it was time to part ways. He had to get to work. But Double T Lane, where they said they lived, was still a ways off. 
He told them to keep the umbrella, but Blue, the younger one, the servant, shook her head. That wouldn't do. He had to work today, but he could come get it tomorrow? Sushan smiled and looked at Lady Bai, who, despite the rain, looked stunning. Sure, why not? At evening the following day, Lady Bai greeted him at the door, looking even more beautiful than she had the day before. It wasn't a house, it was a mansion, and after she invited him in, she offered him the most expensive wine he had ever seen, but the humble pharmacy clerk, Sushan, knew that he wasn't punching his weight here. She was so high above him, he knew where he belonged, and nothing was going to happen here. The previous day, she had talked about how her father had served the emperor himself. He had died, leaving her his massive largesse, and the mansion on Double T Lane. What did a man like Sushan have to offer a woman like that? Blue poured the wine, though, and Lady Bai insisted. It was the least they could do for the kindness he had showed them the previous day. One cup, and they would let him go. Four cups later, Sushang scooted closer to Lady Bai. It might be the wine, but they were getting along really well. He didn't think he was misreading the situation either. And that was confirmed when Lady Bai looked at Blue and nodded. Blue took off her servant hat and put on her wingwoman hat when she very subtly asked Sushan if he had taken a main wife yet. The wine almost came out of Sushan's nose. Wow, okay. She was just going to come out and say it. Um, no, he hadn't taken a main wife yet. He hadn't taken any wife. His parents had lived and died in poverty, and he was slowly clawing his way out of it. Well, that settles it, Blue said. She said her lady was alone in the world. Sushan was alone in the world. A man without a wife couldn't be noble. And the text says that a woman without a husband has a pained lotus, which footnotes assure me that the meaning of that statement is that love and lotus have a similar pronunciation. Anyway, Blue continued. Lady Bai and Sushan were a pair of mandarin ducks, the monogamous symbol of mutual love and devotion. They got along well. They were both 23. Why spend the rest of their lives alone? after refusing so obvious a match. Sushan sat flabbergasted. Was he hearing this right now? No. I mean, yes, absolutely yes. But no. He had nothing. He had no money for engagement gifts. No ability to put on a wedding. No means to give Lady Bai the life she deserved. Without looking to Lady Bai, Blue rose. When she returned to the room, two silver ingots tapped down on the table. What about now? Sushan cocked an eyebrow. This, this was more than he made in a year. Blue patted Sushan on the hand. That should about handle the engagement and the wedding, right? The woman stood, and Sushan followed. He should go home and ask his sister for advice. And when she said, yes, marry the rich, beautiful woman who is clearly out of your league, Sushan should pick an auspicious day for the wedding. Stunned and a little speechless, Sushan nodded and said goodbye to the woman. When he was gone, Blue smirked. Did Lady Bai like that? The silver ingots? She had anticipated the needs of her master, the white snake, and she had acted on it. Now, he had no excuse but to marry her. Lady Bai nodded. That was a surprising twist, but good job. Say, where did she get the silver ingots? At that, Blue tapped her forehead. Well... She knew they were being held in a vault, so last night, she summoned five demons to help her rob that vault. 
she put together a demon crew. There were a lot of convoluted plans, a lot of jazz playing in the background, but all in all, pretty solid heist. She had 18 more silver ingots sitting in the back room. Lady by side. Hard. Cool. Well, that solved one problem, but created another big one. What happened when Sushang used the ingots to, like, put down a deposit on a venue or pay for a DJ? Blue started to speak, but stopped. Oh, yeah. Huh. That did expose him to a ton of danger, I guess. Okay, hear me out. Devil's advocate, or I guess our advocate. What were the odds that anyone who would know what the incredibly specific government stamp on the bottom of the ingot meant would actually come in contact with it? Meanwhile, on the other side of town, Sushan was telling his older sister and his cop brother-in-law the good news. He was getting married. And no, of course he didn't know what the stamps on the bottom of the ingots meant. Why was his brother-in-law getting the cuffs out? Faced with the possibility that his brother-in-law and his wife's only remaining family member was part of a criminal enterprise that had robbed a government vault and disappeared without a trace, Sushan's brother-in-law didn't wait. The pharmacy merchant went before a magistrate later on that day. We'll see what happens when Xu Xiang accidentally turns himself in for committing the worst heist in the area's history, but that will be right after this. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. All right, now back to the show. The judge looked at Sushan, not really believing what he was hearing. Either this man was a complete genius, or he had no idea what he was doing. So, the judge started asking the man questions. I mean, why pull off the perfect crime and then brag about it to a cop. Sushan smiled and said that he was getting married, but he was living on a budget, so the judge cut him off and facepalmed. I'm not really getting criminal mastermind vibes from you, he said, before demanding to know with, like, way more concision where Sushan got the ingots. Sushan said that that was what he was trying to say. His awesome and beautiful fiancé had given them to him. There must be some kind of mistake, though. She's a super rich daughter of a government official. She lived down on Double T Lane. The magistrate's eyes widened. Where? 
on Double T Lane? It was true that there was a mansion on Double T Lane. It had formerly belonged to the Prince of Wu, but it had been abandoned years ago. Now, it was a place of demons. The magistrate was committed to justice, though, and he was going to get those ingots back. He announced that they were going to bring those demons in. The officials there smiled. Nice. They looked around. Did they have a team of, like, warrior monks that could battle the demons on physical, spiritual, and magical levels? The magistrate shook his head. The leader of the Yaman Runners, who I gather are kind of like police officers slash bailiffs, nodded. Okay, okay. So just like, one warrior monk, or... Nope. Just normal police guys taking in demons on their home turf? Yeah. Yeah, this should go well. As ten of the Yaman Runners were kicking in the door of the now decrepit mansion that used to belong to the Prince of Wu, they rushed inside surrounded the two women, who were just sitting there in the middle of an empty room. Blue stood, chastising the police for breaking him without reason. The police got the, do you know who I am, line, before Blue told them. This was a house that belonged to a high-ranking government official. The police couldn't even conceive of the punishment that was in store for them. The leader of the Yamanrunner said that they actually had Sushan in custody. He told them the whole story. They knew the women were demons. Oh, so this isn't some like super sweet, fully loaded mansion to you guys then? The leader of the Yaman runner shook his head. No, it's nasty. I mean, there's a rat giving birth over there in the corner. Huh, yeah, that's something you don't see every day, Blue remarked. One would hope, the leader said. Now if the demons would be so kind... They were under arrest for robbery. Blue shrugged. Gonna agree to disagree on that one. And, as a counterpoint, Bai. In a flash, both Blue and Lady Bai disappeared, leaving the Tang Yaman runners alone in the mansion. The leader breathed for the first time in ten minutes, grateful that they were gone. He had no idea how he was supposed to bring in two demons, and them disappearing was pretty much the best-case scenario. The magistrate had the silver store back in the same vault as before, because that worked so well. And since the 18 other ingots were recovered in the dilapidated mansion, Sushan wasn't charged with a crime. That didn't mean he was free, though. The magistrate recognized that the demons were after Sushan. To what extent, he had no idea. But the man was as kind and as humble as he was stupidly trusting. The only solution the judge could find was, of course, pressing Sushan into military service and forcibly exiling him for three years from the only home he ever knew. The judge was very kind. One year later, Sushan was arriving at work. His boss at the pharmacy knew another boss at another pharmacy in Suzhou, his new city. So with a letter of recommendation... Sushan got basically the same job under a man known only as the millionaire. Presumably this was before he and his wife took that three-hour tour. Yeah, myths and legends. Come for the world folklore, stay for those fresh Gilligan's Island references. Sushan got all set up and 
Even though he had basically copy-pasted his life into a new city, he was happy. Then, his boss, the millionaire, called him into the back office. Sushan screamed when he saw them. Lady Bai and Blue were sitting, having tea with the millionaire. He screamed that these women, that they were demons. He said he knew Sushan's story. And that was his first thought as well. But these ladies, they were really good looking. Demons couldn't be beautiful. Vis-a-vis, these weren't demons. I mean, it wasn't like demons were known for their ability to deceive. Lady Bai rose. She said that if Sushan was going to continue thinking she was a demon, they would just have to meet up in the next life. He stopped her. Okay, if she wasn't a demon, what happened with the silver? She said that that was an honest mistake. Her father, who had been a real government official and not some random ball python, had always used government funds to temporarily cover his personal expenditures. Which, yeah, that seems like a very quick way to lose your job. Anyway, she repaid the government with interest. And it was all good. The magistrate concocted some story about them disappearing to cover his tracks and sent the only witness far away. Sushan looked at the ground. They weren't demons, then? Lady Bai shook her head. Nope. So, did she still want to get married? The monk, Fahai, rested his hand on the merchant's shoulder as he climbed the railing. The man looked back. I can help you, the monk said. The merchant climbed down. Fahai learned that it happened the night before. A flash of blue and the merchant's entire shipment, 300 loads of sandalwood, had dropped into the river. It was a massive order and it had all been lost. The merchant knew he wouldn't be able to recover from it. So he was going to throw himself into that same churning, rocky water. But the monk, Fahai, of the Golden Mountain Monastery, stopped him just in time. He was out soliciting donations. But there was something about this whole affair. There were demons at work. In the end, he made a donation to the merchant. It wasn't much, but it would help him get back on his feet and stave off complete ruin. With planning and luck, he would be successful again. The merchant hugged the monk and rushed back home. The monk stayed on the bridge for a long time, looking down the road, the one that went to Susho. The pharmacy wasn't his first stop, but he made it there eventually. Fahai, the monk, was truly out soliciting donations. So that made stopping by every house in town not only plausible, but expected. The pharmacy was a new one. In the two years since Sushan and Lady Bai married, with the blessing and the funding of the millionaire, and not an Ocean's Eleven-style silver heist, the millionaire decided to franchise his operation and gave Sushan enough money to start his own pharmacy. Living together as man and wife, the couple was truly happy and deeply in love. The monk, Fahai, smiled when he saw Sushan's face. That love, or something like it, was written all over it. It was obvious. He said that he was in town soliciting donations for some statues at the Golden Mountain Temple. But he had this feeling. They needed money, but more so, they needed wood to carve the statues. Did 
did the pharmacist happen to know where the monk could find, I don't know, 300 loads of sandalwood? Sushan's face lit up. This was truly from heaven, because his wife and her servant had, just a few days ago, dragged 300 loads of wood from the river out back. And you know what? They were going to do it. They were going to donate the wood to the temple. It was the right thing to do, and it would be great for their karma. The monk, Fahai, smiled. It would truly be great for Sushan's karma. Could he speak to the man's wife? To thank her, too, for the donation? Sushan shook his head. Unfortunately, she had taken ill in the past day and was stuck in bed. Uh, Fahai shook his head. He was sorry to hear that. Well, they would have to come to the unveiling of the statues, at the very least, so they could be honored for their generosity. Sushan's eyes widened. Wow, yeah. Thank you, he smiled. It felt good to give back. Fahai dug deep in his robes. One more thing. He placed a small bottle of Ryogar wine on the counter. This should help Lady Bai recover. She'll feel like her true self again. Before the monk handed Sushan the wine, though, he paused and looked into the man's eyes. I can help you, he said. Sushan could only smile. What was the monk talking about? The monk relaxed. When the time came, Sushan would know. Sushan picked up the bottle. Cool. Thanks for the medicine wine and the menacing foreshadowing. When the monk left, Sushan left his assistant at the counter and made his way upstairs. He knocked on his wife's door and she asked him to enter. He asked how she was feeling and said that he had talked to someone very important. He had medicine. He uncorked the little bottle and passed it to her. She took a deep swig. Medicine? This tasted like wine. I mean, it's the 12th century. Kinda, what's the difference? Lady Bai nodded. Fair enough. Oh, oh. Where did he get this medicine? She sat up in bed and inhaled sharply. It, it felt like her abdomen was coming apart. Sushan took her hand. He said a monk had given it to him after he donated the 300 sandalwood bundles. Lady Bai's eyes widened. Her clothes began to go flat. Sushan had to leave. Right now. Her husband said that he wouldn't. Not when she was in this condition. Her eyes flashed black. And she reared up in bed. She wasn't asking him. She was commanding him. Leave. Her voice wasn't the melodic, beautiful voice of his wife. It was tinged with a deep and frightening darkness. Like it was coming from somewhere else as well. The wine took effect more quickly than Lady Bai was prepared for, though. And as she sat up in bed, her arms disappeared. Her bedclothes dropped. And in seconds, Sushan was looking at his wife's true form. The massive white snake sat coiled on the bed. Sushan shook. It was true. Everything he feared, everything that he knew deep down, since the time when they had first met, she was a snake. She was a demon. He made to run, but his feet wouldn't move. He gasped and gripped at his chest. He was having a heart attack. As he collapsed, the white snake shot toward him and caught him, easing him onto the ground. By the time Blue rushed in to check the man, the damage was done. He didn't have a pulse. Sushan had died.
Next week, we'll pick back up with the monk, Fahai, on his relentless quest to bring down Lady Bai. If you'd like to support the show beyond leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or telling a friend, there's also a membership thing in the site. For less than the price of a chicken skull, available on multiple sites online for some reason, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show. That isn't the price of seven chickens that you can also buy online, but you don't just get the skulls, you get the whole thing. Anyway, check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Rakshasha, from India. The Rakshashas were created by Brahma, the Hindu creator god, to guard the elixir of immortality, and eh, it's a pretty important job, can't have just anyone becoming immortal, and a tiger-human hybrid with five legs and body covered in blood is a pretty solid deterrent. There is just one problem, though. The Rakshasas get time off. Maybe they have a pretty good union, I don't know. So when they're not protecting the elixir of immortality, they'll clock out and head back to the treetops where they live. Their lazy Saturday consists of crashing a funeral or two by wandering through cemeteries, being a five-legged, blood-covered tigra. Then, it's time for a snack. That's when the males and females split up. The male Rakasha's favorite foods are infants and pregnant women, which, we get it, you're evil. When a pregnant woman, or a person with a baby, is walking under a tree, they now have something new to worry about. Murder vomit. The male Rakasha will spew his vomit down in the unsuspecting traveler, killing them instantly. I don't know the mechanism by which murder vomit claims its victims, and I'm pretty cool not knowing it. The female Rakasha has a much more conventional female monster way of hunting. She'll just shapeshift into a beautiful looking human woman and lure men into the forest, draining them of their blood. If you're listening to this and thinking, I'd like to make a Rakasha of my very own, well, first, you're in need of some very serious help. But oddly enough, there is a way. There's a belief that if a child can be convinced to eat human brains, then they will transform into the creature. I would say good luck, but I don't wish you good luck on this. It's horrifying in every way. But really, I had a hard time getting my kid to eat vegetables. So, you know, human brains might be a hard sell. If you want to kill the Rakasha, and I would recommend it because really, the less murder vomit in the world, the better. An exorcism should do the trick. If you don't have access to quick exorcisms, and want to trap a blood-soaked tiger, prolonged exposure to direct sunlight should kill them. And if you're really in a pinch, you can just burn them down to ash, which will probably get rid of a good number of mythological creatures. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks again to Simply Safe for sponsoring us this week. If you've been thinking about your home security, there is no better time to get it than right now. Starting this week, Simply Safe Home Security is giving our listeners exclusive deals for Black Friday. Simply Safe almost never has a deal like this. This is already the best value in home security, and right now, you'll get all the savings from this massive Black Friday sale. Just visit simplysafe.com/legends. This offer ends Cyber Monday. That's Monday, December 2nd. So go before then. simplysafe.com Slash legends. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 